Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see everyone today. Thank you for coming. Um, it's going to be a great day in Malibu. I'm, I'm pretty confident of that. So, um, and I hope you're getting your uh, ocean fix this year. Uh, that's one of our one of our reasons for coming, but not the first, not the top reason, but a good reason. Okay, we're gonna. Uh, everyone should have a handout that kind of covers uh, the structure and main points uh, of our, t our talk today. Um, Lauren and I are pleased to join together, uh, partner in this, and, and presenting these two days. Yesterday, we looked at sort of where we are now in the cultural context that presses on us and challenges our our understanding of Scripture and its authority. And today, we're going to develop a case for what we are calling a classic doctrine of scripture. Um, so um, we noted yesterday uh, some things. For one was that the, the modern academic study of the Bible is fraught with pitfalls. It's valuable and been useful in lots of ways, but it's also fraught with pitfalls, which we have attempted to sketch. As we noted yesterday, modern critical scholarship has tended to fragment the Bible, undermine its truthfulness, and explain its origins in mostly human and historical terms. Um, so, um, indeed, we noted that much modern reading of the Bible is not the reading of Holy Scripture, but the reading of an ancient collection of texts that provides fascinating insight into ancient cultures um, but in modern, so in modern times, study of the Bible has tended to, tended to become, uh, at least lean toward becoming, a critical historical study, which, as we quoted yesterday from Hans Frey, which often meant attention to almost anything about the Bible except its authoritative claim upon the reader. Um, <clears throat> In place of modern and postmodern approaches to scripture, which we traced yesterday, we're seeking to set forth what we could call, what we do call a classic doctrine of scripture. One that en encompasses and makes sense to the whole Christian tradition. We want a doctrine of scripture that is not simply modern, that is to say, developed uh, after the 17th century but one that can make sense to the whole Christian tradition with its theologians and pastors and exegetes over 20 centuries. Modern doctrines of scripture, we noted yesterday, whether liberal or conservative, tend to assume that the tools of historical criticism provide the true and proper way to read scripture which means that since these tools were discovered only in modern times, the church across the centuries has been largely bereft of the true way to read God's word. This assumption is a modern hubris that we find untenable. So um, we, we thus uh, affirm today, some of the, some of the key things we want to affirm as crucial truths are the following. That God's Spirit generated, sanctified, and preserved these texts for the purposes of the Trinity. That 
the Spirit continues to work in and through Scripture, not only to inform us about Christ, but also to form us, to form Christ in us. And thirdly, that God's Spirit does all of this through incarnational means. We'll be developing these and other points today. So, as you see on your handout, we propose seven basic convictions that anchor, we believe, a classic or orthodox Christian doctrine of Scripture. And that we're in a time now when it seems to me very significant and important to reaffirm these uh, ancient and continuing convictions. First is the strong conviction that Scripture is living and active, to quote from Hebrews 4.12. It is to the strong conviction that through Scripture, God is powerfully at work, transforming our lives and drawing us into the life of the Trinity, to partake of God's own life. We can say that, um, to use traditional language, it is a means of grace. That is to say, it is a kind of sacrament, something through which God works actively. It's a primary means by which we hear the living voice of God. Uh, that is, at least until that time when we hear God's voice in his very presence. <clears throat> we like to call this a Trinitarian doctrine of Scripture. It points to the way Scripture functions within the ongoing activity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the dramatic story of God's saving work on our behalf. <clears throat> in a functionally Trinitarian view of Scripture, um, our reading of Scripture is an activity that takes place and we're going to just put this boldly here, uh, that takes place in relation to the life of God. We affirm that God is present and active with human beings, that God in desires and creates fellowship with those who are in Christ by the power of the Spirit, and that Scripture is a basic sacramental means by which God's life touches and shapes us day by day, week by week, into the image of Jesus Christ. This Trinitarian or sacramental view of Scripture faded under the onslaught of modernity or the, or the modern era with its underlying naturalistic assumptions about what the Bible is. The natural, as we noted yesterday, the natural and the supernatural were driven apart so that modern readers of the Bible tend to inhabit a world where God is not present and not active. That is to say, we used this phrase yesterday, a deistic world. In sharp contrast, the deep assumption of the classic Christian view was that in and through Holy Scripture, one encounters the living God. Through Scripture, God confronts us with his Son through the quickening power of the Holy Spirit and thereby draws us 
to participate, to share in the life of the Trinity, to become participants, as First Peter, Second Peter says, in, in the divine nature. Accordingly, our reading of Scripture is an activity that takes place in relation to the life of God. Um, prior, let me add one more point here about, about this, and then we'll move to the second point there. Prior to a doctrine of Scripture and its inspiration is a Trinitarian theology of revelation. In Revelation, we encounter the self-presentation of God, the Trinity. We encounter the fellowship with the Trinity. Um, as Father, God, I'm quoting here from um, <clears throat> John Webster, as Father, God is the personal will and origin of this self-presence. As Son, God actualizes his self-presence, upholding it against all opposition. As Holy Spirit, God perfects that self-presence by making it real and effective in our lives. End of quote. <clears throat> Revelation is Trinitarian because it opens the way of fellowship with God in and through Christ, empowered, illumined by the Holy Spirit. So Revelation is a way of talking about the life-giving and loving presence of the Father of Jesus Christ, uh, in the Spirit's power among the people of God. <coughs> so, first, then, is a, um, a Trinitarian view of Scripture. Scripture is living and active. Okay, number two, you'll see on your handout. A classic doctrine of Scripture affirms th that the Scriptures are from God. This means that the words of these texts words written by, let's be clear, human authors can properly be predicated of God as God's own words. It became standard in the great tradition of our faith to speak of the triune God as the principal author of scripture. This assertion did not deny the real human authors who wrote it but it provided the answer to what made scripture different from all other texts. All texts are written by authors, human authors. And in the modern era, as we noted yesterday, it's been common to say the Bible is to be interpreted just like any other text. But the Bible isn't like every other text. And the difference is that it is from God. There are several words we can use for Scripture's origin as being from God. I want to start with one that's not that common, maybe, in, in, in your experience. We begin with a word that gives us the widest frame to think here. The word is sanctification, that is, making something holy. We can say that the Trinity has sanctified Scripture, these texts. The Trinity has set apart, the Trinity has superintended the processes of Scripture's writing, production, and preservation. This sanctification or setting apart of the texts extends to the historical processes that produce them. 
from the pre-literary and literary traditions to what is usually called redaction or the editing of these texts to compiling them into a collection, first the Hebrew scriptures and then the New Testament, as well as we use the word sanctification as well to extend to the, the, the post-history of these texts, to their preservation, to their collection, to the process of canonization, which gave us the New Testament. The sanctifying work of the Spirit permeated the whole process of producing and compiling the texts that eventually were brought together as a single canon forming the authoritative book of the church. Sanctification thus describes the work of the Holy Spirit to make the living voice of the ascended Christ heard throughout history and in our assemblies. Now, let me make a note here to emphasize a point. Um, with this focus, we do not diminish the creaturely character of these texts. That is to say, the human character of these texts. Rather, it is precisely as creaturely realities written by human authors that the texts serve God's purposes as sanctified texts. They do not become divine. Look, only God is divine. But rather, they are sanctified by the Spirit of God. They are fashioned, set apart, maintained, focused, empowered for the service of God the Trinity. They make up, as we say, as it's printed on our, our Bibles, holy scripture. Modern Western culture, I think we made this point briefly yesterday, modern Western culture has created a strong dualism between the natural and the supernatural, the divine and the human, making it hard for us to hold them together in a kind of tension. The natural has become, in the modern era, the dominant force natural explanations, historical explanations, human explanations. To speak of the sanctification of scripture removes the discussion from the dualistic choice between a divine or a human text. Somewhat like Christian orthodoxy's affirmation that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. We affirm that scripture is both of humans and holy of God. That's a, base, a really base point for us here today uh, in these seven points we're making. So number three, and then after this, Lauren's going to take over for a while, I think. Number three, a classic doctrine of Scripture affirms the inspiration of Scripture. Inspiration here is a, a, a subcategory, you might say, to sanctification uh, of the text. That is to say we affirm as Second Peter 1 says that those moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If sanctification refers to the hallowing of the creature, creaturely realities of these texts, then inspiration refers to the textual application of this sanctification. 
The Spirit moves God's activity into the realm of creatureliness and is active and present, as, to use Webster's phrase, in human communicative acts. In, in recent years, uh, John Webster uh, has sought to retrieve, you might say, retrieve the classic Christian understanding of Scripture's inspiration. It's been under wide assault, of course, in the modern period. In, in face of widespread rejection, indeed scorn, of this classic doctrine uh, in the modern period, uh, people like Webster have sought a retrieval. Late in his career, um, Dr. Webster committed himself to three theses about inspiration. They're listed on your handout. First, there was God's illumination of the human author. He says, the Holy Spirit grants to the writer that measure of understanding of God and all things in relation to God that is necessary for literary representation. So there's, a, uh, there's a, an illumination at work. Uh, it's a, he calls it a, a vivification, a, a quickening of intelligence um, to, um, um, may, that, that he says is essential for the prophet or the apostle to communicate divine truth in writing. The second point, the second thesis, the spirit gives the author an inner impulse to write. Uh, he calls it an augmentation of creaturely powers. They're creaturely powers, but the Spirit augments it, quickens it. And thirdly, he says, the Spirit enables production of the words of Scripture. Um, the Spirit stirs impressions and thoughts and ideas and words that come to expression by the human author through his personality and his language. In this way, he says, that the biblical writers are real authors, not just conduits. They are conscious and intelligent and deliberate when they speak and they write. Now, let me add one more point here, and then it's going to be Lauren's turn to, um, to, to share this with you. We, we may need to say that inspiration at least I would like to say, put it that way, I would like to say that inspiration is not the starting point in our engagement with the Bible. What do I mean by that? The starting point, I think, is living with Scripture in the worshiping community, where we attend to its teachings regularly. We receive it as the word of the Lord to us. And from that practice and that posture, we seek, when we talk about a doctrine of inspiration, we seek to account for the authority of the word of God that we've already experienced in our lives and in the community of, of other Christians. What is this authority this text has for us? It's already been shaping our lives. And we also, I think, need to say that inspiration is a confession of faith. The kind of confession we make when we say, for example, that God created the universe. When we say that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. 
So we have the created world, we have the man Jesus, born in Nazareth, and we have this book we call the Holy Scriptures. These are all actual things that can be explained and often are in our time by scholars without any reference to God. So when we confess that scripture is inspired by God, we are affirming by faith that this book is a full and unique and authoritative revelation from God. It's part of our confession. And so Lauren's going to lead us into our next point here um, about what this means for a doctrine of scripture. Okay, so this gets us into point four, the fourth principle. Uh, Fourthly, a classic doctrine of scripture affirms that because this text is sanctified by God, it is fully truthful and fully trustworthy. Every bit of it is sacred, in other words, even its most puzzling or troublesome content. It's all reliable for drawing us into saving relationship with the triune God. Uh, To think otherwise, you'll see uh, Longcar's quote here on this point on your handout. I think it's a helpful one. To think otherwise is to really break away from Orthodox Christianity. Uh, A strong sense of Scripture's full truthfulness has been deeply embedded in the broad Christian tradition since its beginning. Through the ages, Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, free churches, even most Christian sects at the fringes have held to this conviction. Only in the modern and postmodern era has scripture's full truthfulness and trustworthiness come under assault. This widespread and steady assault has created strong polarization between the biblical scholars on the one hand, and the reactionary defenders of the more orthodox view on the other. We seek to stand neither with the liberal critics nor with the reactionary conservative critics on this account. We want to treat the Bible as wholly truthful rather than merely accurate. That's an important distinction. This will allow us to be, as Telford Work puts it, less troubled by the biblical oddities that drive liberals to artificial demythologizing and arrogant dismissal and drives conservatives to strained apologetics, end quote. To treat scripture as wholly truthful rather than merely accurate, I think means expanding our sense of what being truthful entails. That brings us to our fifth point. A classical doctrine of scripture believes that scripture is to be received and understood in the stream of the great tradition of the church and its teachings. Scripture has had and continues to have its home in the long and unbroken life of the church. It belongs to the church. It belongs to the communion of saints, past, present, and future. In other words, its home is not in the academy 
Its home is not in the heart or mind of the interpreting individual. Let us recall that in the first and second centuries AD, there was not yet a canon. There were circulated letters and shared gospel <coughs> accounts, and these were read in the context of worship. For early Christians, the key defining features of these texts were their unifying confessions, confessions about the Trinitarian God's identity and mission. These unifying truths are preserved in the church's earliest baptismal and ecumenical creeds. That makes Church of Christ people a little uncomfortable, right? <laughs> to read scripture in keeping with what it really is, we should be reading it in light of those core confessions. They're preserved in the rule of faith, which itself is preserved and drawn out in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Scripture is as much guided by that rule of faith as it informs and determines what that rule is. See how that works. Uh, I, I don't think the importance of this point can be overstated for us. We need some way of guiding our reading. Um, as 2 Peter 3 reminds us, false teachers appeal to the same claims that we do. As the second century theologian Tertullian argued, False teachers may hold to the same texts, they may claim the same texts, but they do not hold to the same rule of faith, the same orienting telling of God and of God's mission. The defined biblical canon emerged in the late second and early third centuries in no small way in response to heresies. That process of saying what belongs, what's core, over against the heretical claims was guided by this rule of faith, by the oral tradition of apostolic teaching passed on especially via the creeds. We need to attend to them. We need to let them shape our, the lenses that we apply to the text. This brings us to our sixth principle the classical doctrine of scripture affirms that scripture is unified by one overarching story. You might call it a drama, a theological drama of the triune God with us. As we have discussed, the modern historical critical approaches fractured scripture's unity and coherence. Their methods tended to turn the Bible into a cacophony of competing and often conflicting voices. But, as Ellen Davis and Richard Hayes put it, though the Bible contains the voices of many different witnesses, the canon of Scripture finds its unity in the overarching story of the work of the triune God. While the Bible contains many digressions, <coughs> tensions, and subplots, the biblical texts cohere because the one God acts in them and speaks through them. God is the author of Scripture's unity for the sake of the church's faithful proclamation and action. And that brings us to point seven. The seventh principle is that a classic doctrine of Scripture asserts that the proper reading and interpretation of Scripture requires an attitude of submission and active obedience in the community of faith. 
as Robert Wall observes, misguided interpretations are sometimes the result of ignorance of a text's grammatical or linguistic makeup. However, just as often, mistakes are made because of our sinful dispositions. And as Richard Hayes memorably puts it, no reading of scripture can be legitimate if it fails to shape the reader into uh, readers, plural, into a community that embodies the love of God as shown forth in Christ. True interpretation of scripture leads us into unqualified giving of our lives in service within the community whose vocation is to reenact the obedience of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Okay, I'm going to hand it over to Leonard to think a little bit more about this in light of historical critical methods. We're, going to, we're hoping to have a little time left here at the end for your comments and questions. So that's how we're going to go going along here pretty quick. Um, okay. I want to come back again just for a moment here near the end uh, to this question of critical biblical scholarship that we talked about, especially yesterday and a little bit today. Um, don't get me wrong, uh, we, we can affirm the value of critical biblical scholarship um, with reservations. Um, it's important for, um, for Bible translation, you know, nothing else. Uh, it, it's important for historical backgrounds to help us understand the context of scripture better. Uh, it's important for seeking and reading well the literal sense of scripture, though it has tended to downplay or jettison the, the spiritual sense. The Bible, and the Bible of course is like other books in certain ways, in that it deeply reflects its location in human history, human culture, ancient Near Eastern culture, for example, and to understand that culture better, helps shed better light on reading the Bible well. Um, and there's, of course, the languages, the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic in which it was written. Um, but, in it, so those things are helpful, and I'm not, not completely denigrating that, but Scripture is also more than that, as we're trying to argue. Scripture is also sacramental, where God is living and active through it. It's also inspired, sanctified. That is, it's not only human or creaturely, but also holy and sanctified by God for God's own special purposes. <coughs> Higher criticism of our modern last 200 years has tended to undermine or reject this truth, the truth of its sanctified and inspired character. We believe that higher critical approaches have overreached <coughs> and become dominant in the modern, especially the modern academy, with negative effects. The situation has come about due to several strong tendencies. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention four real quick. <coughs> touched on some of this yesterday. 
Uh, these would include the extraction of the text from its ecclesial and liturgical setting, and indeed from faith. Second, um, it, it, it's a result of a naturalistic assumption that scripture texts are simply texts, as the modern saying goes, just like any other text. And thirdly, it involves often, not always, an, an, an implicit rejection of Scripture as sacrament and a strong tendency for a deistic reading of Scripture. And fourthly, it's tended to involve confidence that the tools of higher criticism provide the true and proper way, necessary way, to read Scripture. <coughs> and, and our view would be it, it's very helpful but not essential. Now, a couple of illustrations of this in my own experience. As a young MDiv student, and then a PhD student years ago, in the, well, I'll just be honest, mid to late 70s, uh, I was thoroughly exposed to the landscape of critical historical study of the Bible. I learned about the four source hypothesis uh, for the Pentateuch, the origin of the Pentateuch. Remember the J, E, D, and P sources? Many scholars at that time presented it as the assured result of higher critical scholarship. It's just, you know, just the truth, the way it is. But now, several decades later, it appears that few of the details of that theory from then are embraced by many contemporary Bible scholars. Here's another example from my own experience. My PhD work years ago, I was assigned to read the 500-page Introduction to the Old Testament by the German scholar named George Ferrer. He was a leading Bible scholar at that time, uh, well-known around the world. I've read recently he later converted to Judaism. As I pushed through this fat book uh, with a lot of dense pages, it became clear to me that he didn't believe that Abraham or Moses ever existed. They were fabrications of the tradition. Such occurrences as that are not at all unusual in modern biblical scholarship, uh, at least of the more radical sort. And today, what they used to call the assured results of critical study of the Bible are so varied and wide-ranging and contentious that it's hard to keep cynicism at bay about much of this modernist enterprise. As Walter Wink, a well-known New Testament scholar, put it over 20 years ago, I quote, apart from a few general agreements, after 200 years of critical exegesis, there is scarcely a conclusion of biblical scholarship that is uncontested. Well, that's encouraging and comforting, right? The result today, I mean, what's happening around us is a reaction against this, of which I would consider myself a part. The result today is a rising recognition that modern biblical studies has become increasingly, let's just put it, maybe a little extreme, incoherent. And indeed, that the modernist paradigm and assumptions and ideology is faltering. Richard Hayes, that uh, Lauren quoted, and N.T. Wright, who has been here at this event, Harbor, uh, to speak a few years ago, 
are prominent voices of this turn and this critique. And scholars I mentioned yesterday, like Michael Legospi, have been oiling the hinges and prying open the rusted door to pre-modern exegesis. We believe that the higher critical method should be subordinated to the church's focus on the mission of God. You could say um, tamed, as Joel Green said. They must be tamed in relation to the theological aims of Scripture and the, the church context in which the Bible is always read as holy Scripture. Reading the Bible as Scripture means that its primary residence is the church and its mission not the academy. To use the terms of Telford work, we much prefer the ecclesi what he calls the ecclesial Bible over the critical Bible. So, Lauren's going to bring us home with a few concluding thoughts. This is a, a difficult topic to wind up, right? To put a bow on. Um, maybe a few kind of key takeaways. We do not diminish the creaturely or human character of these texts. It is precisely as creaturely realities that the texts serve God's purposes. This is why we say they're sacramental. It's actually a pretty ancient way of thinking of, of Scripture. In its sacramentality, Scripture is both of humans and holy of God. In keeping with these convictions, we believe that the defining doctrine of Christianity, which is the doctrine of the Trinity, has an important role to play in how we understand the basic focus and function of Scripture. Scripture is the product and the medium of the Spirit's work of new creation. It's not the only one, but it is a, a really important one. In and through these texts, we are being formed into the likeness of Christ, into the unfolding life of the Son in the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit for the sake of the will of the Father being fulfilled in all things. A key challenge we face right now is a new kind of secularism that presses on Christian faith as a whole in the West. In the imminent frame, the very awareness of and openness to divine transcendence to an unseen spiritual realm diminishes. In this frame, the presumption of unbelief has become dominant in numerous spheres of life. So it may not surprise us that 30 million people in North America who used to call themselves Christian have now deconverted. They've become non-verts. To what degree do we seek to accommodate the new secular order and to what degree do we resist it? In a time like this, many of us who were formed in very conservative, sectarian Christian traditions and have made our way to a non-sectarian mainland will likely be drawn in one of two directions. Some of us will seek to play catch up to the mainland culture, to get in step 
with a modern moral order and to travel a path towards some variety of progressive faith. And some of us will attempt to push back gently, but push back against the accommodationist posture and move toward a faith that is anchored solidly in classic Christianity in the great tradition. We have chosen the second option. So we made it. We actually have four minutes left, maybe five if we press it. So we'd be glad to hear, hear some of your, your comments, uh, questions. Yeah, Seth. So one thing that, that I think is a big struggle in our tradition is uh, so many people haven't thought right, about this holiness of scripture, the most central thing to our faith. And I think what becomes difficult in a congregational setting is to teach people how to separate uh, the holiness of Uh, well, I, you know, it's a great question and it's a hard question. Uh, I don't have the answer, but my sense is that um, there's a what's needed is somehow to trust the the tradition that's come before us, the, the voices of those who have come before us. So when we stop seeing ourselves as navigating faith as individuals, but rather as a community, I think that's a really important shift. So maybe looking for other ways to see <coughs> what we're doing more in terms of communal identity rather than individual responsibility. Um, that seems so important. And then finding ways to lean into and look at the gifts of tradition, the wisdom that comes from it, right? And so that's, um, there's all sorts of ways we, we might come at that and attempt to do it, but that seems really important. I would, I, I've found, um, well, a metaphor used by uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, helpful here. He was, uh, without, I think, without doubt, the greatest histor historian of Christian doctrine in the 20th century. And uh, he said, um, he used the, the analogy of base, a baseball metaphor. He said, you, ha you have a baseball field, and there are definite boundaries on the field. There's a foul line all the way around. Uh, but he said, and so you, you, you always have to say, that, that's out of bounds. That's not an orthodox position. But he said, within, between the foul lines on the baseball field, there's a vast space in which you can discuss and disagree and keep studying, dig into the tradition, change your mind. You know, but there, there's a boundary. And I think being clearer not in some sectarian way about our little historic boundaries, but about the Christian boundary that the rule of faith sets out very clearly, or the Apostles' Creed sets out very clearly, which is a way of a, a guide to reading the story of God in the scriptures without getting off track. Uh, if, we can, if we can find, in a sense, that the, the, the sense of boundaries, 
then we have room to, to talk with each other and study together and disagree together. That's a hard thing itself, but it gives us a, more, a clearer, bigger space in which to do it. Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking of uh, David Luxon in 1899 wrote an editorial on the gospel advocate that had to do with the age of you know, literature. Quickly, there it was created. Luxon thought that the plain language of the text says seven literal days, but somebody else had written in and said he thought it was long periods of time. And Luxon said that would solve a lot of difficulties. So truly, still struggled with what he thought was the <coughs> plain language of the, you know, the text. And then he added this. He said, I've made up my mind Four years, if necessary. And just kind of piggybacking on what you said in terms of the field, he was basically saying, I'm willing to talk and discuss about this particular issue. And I think we do need to accuse him out of trouble sometimes because I'm going to decide what's out of bounds. And then, then, right, right. then the battle is lost. Yeah. And that's where the tradition becomes so vital to help us know the large, the large foul lines, you might say and not create our own little small playing field. say that history is uh, that history is complicated so it's hard to say if that's a sign of something in particular but I, you do see a, a shift right around the Reformation towards a, a kind of 
need for the individual, you start seeing it. I mean, you see the, the seeds of this planted, of the individualist kind of reading where we find ourselves with this sense of, I have to get it right. Um, and so that, that distrust in the community, and we, there's lots of reasons why that came up, right? So there's some really helpful correctives that the Reformation provided. And uh, we don't want to say the Pope's reading is more authoritative than scripture itself. But I think what you're pressing at is an important point, which is that um, we need to learn to trust what the community has found authoritative and helpful over time and the way it's found it, because there's always a canon within a canon. Good. Well, uh, we, we could spend another half hour here well, but thank you for uh, listening carefully and for your thoughts, and um, God bless you with a, a rich and enjoyable day. Thank you.